Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome back to TV's Top 5, the Hollywood Reporter's TV podcast. I'm Leslie Goldberg, West Coast TV editor, and I'm joined by my friend and co-host, THR's chief TV critic, the amazing Daniel Feinberg. Dan, what's shaking? How you doing? Oh, just watching the TV. How about you, Leslie? I'm good. You know, the, the, the wife got me a basketball court or a little basketball hoop for my birthday, and I've been out there every day, and it's a nice way to break up the monotony. So, And then we've been binging everything at night, so yeah. There's definitely plenty of television. Nice to add basketball to your rotation for some reason. <laughs> Dude, it's nice to not stare at a screen for a little while. So, I'm sure that is true. Yes. Well, with things are starting to get or continuing to be busy, I don't know. This would have been our Upfronts Wrap show. Um, we are going to talk a lot about the broadcast space. But first, before we get into all that, let's get into this week's headlines. USA Network has canceled dramas The Purge and Treadstone as it continues to shift to tentpole scripted events like Bravo Import Dirty John and its upcoming Evil miniseries. Over at Broadcast Sibling NBC, the network has renewed Lily Singh's late night series for a second season. That would be evil, E-V-E-L, as in Knievel, not to be confused with E-V-I-L, the very good CBS show that we did a very fine interview with the Kings about on this very podcast at some point. Anyway, just letting the people know. <laughs> uh, over at FX, the John Landgraf-led cable network has renewed the comedy Dave for a second season. If people haven't made it through, uh, I would say that the second half of that first season of Dave is really, really kind of tremendous, actually. So people should check it out even if it turns you off a little bit at first. Meanwhile, Ryan Murphy has announced that he's working on an American Horror Story individual episodic anthology spinoff because why the heck not? Yes. Uh, elsewhere in the streaming space, Netflix has picked up eight episodes of live action drama Sweet Tooth based on the Vertigo Gomic... <clears throat> Based on the Vertigo comic of the same name, Robert Downey Jr. exec produces with Will Forte and James Brolin attached to star. Over at Disney Plus, The House of Mouse is developing two more TV series based on movies from its film studio with National Treasure and a Percy Jackson show. Two different shows, I should say, with National Treasure and Percy Jackson shows in development there. Meanwhile, at Amazon, the streamer has renewed Upload for a second season. And this is your reminder to please go check out our April 24th interview with creator Greg Daniels all about Upload and Netflix's upcoming Space Force. It's a good one. Over at HBO Max, the upcoming streamer is rebooting former ABC comedy Head of the Class with Bill Lawrence attached to an executive produce. Once again, because 
why not? The I love streamer. that show, man. That was a good one. <laughs> I grew had, up watching that. That doesn't mean it was a good one. It just means that you grew up watching it. It had. It was moments. the dude from WKRP in Cincinnati. How could I, I not watch it? I, I am Dr. not Drew. saying that Howard Hessman was in any way a problem, though it was only him for some of the time. Anyway, yes, it was a show that had moments. I vividly remember the episodes where they went to Russia for some reason. That was a that was a thing that lingers in my mind. Uh, that being said, I don't need that it know that it needed to be rebooted, but whatever. Anyway, the streamer, that being again, HBO Max has also picked up Santa Inc., an animated series featuring Seth Rogen and Sarah Silverman. At HBO proper, episodic anthology Room 104 will end with its previously announced fourth season. In Viacom news, Comedy Central's Alternatino with Arturo Castro is moving to Quibi for a second season. Elsewhere, the conglomerate is developing a younger spinoff starring Hilary Duff, which could be shopped to other outlets. And that's exactly what's happening with Darren Starr's fellow series, Emily in Paris, which is near a deal to be picked up at Netflix instead of Paramount Network after it was originally developed by TV Land. Got that? Yeah, it's a lot. Meanwhile, at CBS All Access, which of course is under the Viacom fold, will be rebranded to include more content from across that portfolio. And the streamer will continue to air The Good Fight, which has also been renewed for a fifth season. Lots going on at Viacom, Dan. Lots going on everywhere all day this seems. week. Yeah. In COVID production updates, Tyler Perry's BET series Sistas and The Oval have both been renewed for second seasons and will become the first scripted shows to resume production as cast will be sequestered onto his massive Atlanta sound stages and will film their entire 22-episode seasons in less than two weeks, file under Things You Can Apparently Do If You're Tyler Perry. And meanwhile, Patriot Act with Hassan Minaj uh, is returning for additional episodes that will be produced virtually. Yay. Yeah, that's a busy week, man. And we haven't even gotten into broadcast. But yeah, lot, lots going on. It seems like everyone's kind of lining up their doc, you know, getting their ducks in a row for when things do resume. And speaking of getting back to business, let's get into this week's TV's Top 5. Number one. Leading off, as we've mentioned several times, we would normally be talking about upfronts this week. That would normally be the thing we would be talking all about. Well, they're not happening, but in their place, the CW has had a busy week of programming moves, uh, particularly on Thursday morning with scheduling announcements and a conference call with President Mark Pedowitz. So, Leslie, break down what we learned on Thursday morning about what the heck the CW is going to be doing this fall or maybe this winter. Well, we've been talking about this for the last couple of months, and once the production shutdown began, a lot of people, a lot of industry sources had been saying that January could be the new fall in terms of the start to the traditional fall season, and the CW did basically just that. Instead of launching in October when it traditionally does with new and returning shows, they are holding those things like the new Superman and Lois show, the Walker Texas Ranger show starring Jared Padalecki, the returns of things like The Flash and Batwoman. All of those shows are being kept on the bench until January because obviously we have no idea when production is going to resume for the most for the better part of the industry. You know, you mentioned the Tyler Perry shows. That is not the model for resuming production. <laughs> I'm sure that they're going to have some safety protocols that will be used elsewhere, but it's going to be impossible to sequester every single cast from every single show 
during production. That That's not a realistic estimate for returning to production. So instead of launching their fall season in October with all of their favorite shows, the CW is going to take a lot of, of acquired shows. This week they picked up Swamp Thing, the former DC Universe show that was canceled, I think it was five days after its first episode debuted on DC Universe. They also picked up uh, seasons one and two of CBS All Access drama, Tell Me a Story. Both of those will air Tuesdays starting in the fall. Of course, we don't know when exactly the CW's fall season is going to launch. They didn't provide that information. They just kind of said fourth quarter, which could imply October. It could imply later. There's a lot of of moving parts to this. But when you're looking at the fall, the fall schedule for the CW, whatever, whenever it does launch in the fourth quarter, there is one show that needs to be produced. And that is the two remaining episodes of Supernatural's final season. The CW had five episodes previously produced that it wasn't able to finish post on. So they decided to hold them. The hope is that they will have production back up and running sometime in the summer, in the late summer, to be able to get those final two episodes filmed and air starting in the fourth quarter. And then you're going to see the rest of, the, of their lineup is it's filled with whose line is it anyway, Penn and Teller Fool Us, which they've used. And they've kind of peppered those shows throughout their schedule, be it midseason or summer. Um, they picked up a show from CW Seed called Two Sentence Horror Stories. They acquired two foreign pickups, uh, two comedies called Dead Pixels and Coroner. Again, these are shows that were that aired elsewhere and had already have have completed seasons in the can. The Outpost, which the CW, another acquisition the CW has aired before, that's going to air on Thursdays after Supernatural in the fall. And then on Friday, it's World's Funniest Animals. Sunday is going to be Masters of Illusion. So yeah, you're, and, and Pandora, another another acquisition. So this is basically the CW saying, we are buying time. We don't know when production is going to start. Here's how we're going to do that. And we can talk about Fox, which announced its schedule earlier this week. But the CW basically is saying, we're going to wait and hope that it can return to work as usual in production sometime in September to be able to make January premiere dates, which is when it's going to say, which is when the network is saying, this is when our new season is technically launching. It's going to be in January. And then you're going to have so much stability. If production is able to resume, their schedule is going to look exactly like it did this season. The only difference is that you're going to have Superman and Lois taking over Arrow slot on Tuesday and Walker, again, the new Jared Padalecki show, taking over for Supernatural on Thursday. Of course, that's a major if when you're talking about the state of the world right now and if production is able to actually resume. So that's, <laughs> yeah, big if. So yeah, lots of lots of moves at the CW to, to basically safeguard their the start of their season in, in the fall or whatever they're, they're going to call it if it's not the start of their season. So And the CW has many fewer things to even be available to be on a bubble, much less actually being on a bubble. So what information came out this week regarding apparently the one show bubble of Katie Keene? Uh, Still in contention. The finale aired this week, Thursday. The CW has has stacking rights to in or in season stacking rights, which means starting Friday, May 15th, the entire season of Katie Keene is going to be available on its ad supported platforms. So that's CW.com or CWTV.com. You can watch the entire season there. And what they're hoping, what what Mark Pedowitz said during his conference call is that he's hoping that the digital returns on that show are enough to kind of get it over the hill 
into a pickup. And then you've got HBO Max launching later this month, and Katie Keene will be among the shows that streams there when it launches. So if it can can have a big digital tail, chances are you'll see Katie Keene come back. And as for the rest of the CW's pilots, like they also picked up this year, uh, this season, they picked up Kung Fu from exec producer Greg Berlanti and The Republic of Sarah, which was developed last season at CBS and retooled this year. Both of those are slated for mid-season. Mid-season is another great question for the CW. Typically, mid-season starts in January. But if the CW is launching its fall season, fall basically fall is January. Mid-season could be anywhere from April to June. It's unclear the, you know, the amount of episodes that a lot of these shows earmarked for June are going to have. You know, the CW is going to launch its season with 10 scripted series in January. And then it has another seven, including Kung Fu and Republic of Sarah, that are earmarked for whenever midseason could be. So you could see some shows that, that get staggered. Supergirl is on the bench. You know, Melissa Benoist is, is pregnant. So that that won't resume until after she delivers and is good to and is good to come back. So yeah, you, you could see the CW's the CW with originals maybe even throughout next October 2021, which would be when it would in a normal world start its new fall season. So no, I think there is. No, I think there is no question that a this is what the CW has wanted for years to be going to full year round legitimate scheduling. So it, yeah, and it or, has, and it has again to varying degrees. You know, summer right? Has, it, <laughs> whose line is it anyway? And a lot of these imports, but now you're you're seeing them double down on it. Yeah, if suddenly these things become fall shows, it kind of changes the definition. But also, given that the CW always launched in October to get out of the way of all of the September launches on other networks. What's going to happen if all of the other networks ultimately decide, okay, we're going to be ready to do what is effectively our fall rollout come January ourselves. Does that going to make the CW then want to make February into the new January? I don't think anyone truly knows anything. And I don't think anything that anyone is announcing this week is contractually binding. <laughs> yeah. It's a first class problem. If that happens, Dan, you know, Oh my God, production's back up and running and everything's going to come back in January. We should all be so lucky. It would make January uh, 2021 TCAs all the more important as networks attempt to launch vast, vast slates of original programming into a programming-starved world. So keep that in mind, networks. You just stressed me out by talking about January TCA 2021. So I, it was I ho- look, I hope I, it comes back. I was going to say, I was being optimistic. Yeah, that's like, a, I mean, look, it could be very crowded and... But if that happens, I mean, I think audiences after a fall that could be devoid of a lot of new favorites, if this is a strategy that ABC, NBC and CBS follow. And and we haven't heard anything about their their scheduling plans. Usually this time last year, we would have had a full fall schedule from all five broadcast networks. Obviously, we are far, far, far away from tradition at this point in the lockdown. Um, But we do know a little bit more about about Fox, which takes us up to guess what? Our next topic. Number two. As you mentioned, we could discuss some of Fox's uh, fall schedule details, and that would in fact be our second segment this week. Uh, It is, and we keep saying all the same things over and over again. It's unclear when production is going to be able to resume on everything, Uh, but the network's entire programming schedule, minus the Masked Singer, is in the can for the fall. So, Leslie, talk a bit about how Fox is going to be not just keeping the lights on, but actually having a pretty fair amount of original programming in the fall. 
Well, one of the strategies that we have been talking about is that some networks had decided to save some of their scripted and unscripted programs that managed to complete production that were scheduled to air in the spring and into the summer as kind of the bridge between fall. They decided to bank those. And that's exactly what Fox did. So they picked up these two shows called Filthy Rich and Next. They picked those up a year ago and they were slated to air in the spring. You know, they're probably not the highest testing ones among the network. Usually that's typically when, you know, the, the spring is kind of the, the sense where you kind of get the the last laps, I guess, or, the you know, the the bottom of the barrel of what they picked up, uh, at least creatively. And that's kind of what the rumor is about these two shows. And Dan, you can speak to that more because you've actually seen them. So they picked up these shows a year ago. They decided to hold them and now they're going to air in the fall. They extended the cast option. So they paid the cast a little bit more to kind of keep the, them around for a little bit. And they're going to program them in the fall. That's that's going to be their, their, their fall launch. Next is going to air on Mondays, Filthy Rich on Tuesdays. The network picked up and licensed the first two seasons of LA's Finest, which if you remember, that is the former NBC drama. It's the Bad Boys spinoff starring Gabrielle Union and Jessica Alba. NBC developed it. They've shockingly passed on it. It's produced by Sony. They shopped it, believing, look, this is a big concept. It's existing IP. It's got two movie stars in it. And they sold it. It became Spectrum. Yes, the cable operator. It became Spectrum's first scripted original show. So Fox is basically saying we can get a cop drama with two bankable stars that most people probably haven't seen because again, it's only available if you're a spectrum subscriber and put it on on Mondays and maybe it rates and it probably costs them less than it costs to produce a new scripted show. So that's one way. LA's Finest is going to air Mondays um, in the fall at a date to be determined on Fox. It's going to take the slot that was previously occupied by 911. The rest of Fox's schedule, when you look at it, Cosmos Possible Worlds, which is the National Geographic show that is exec produced by uh, Seth MacFarlane, that aired on Nat Geo a few months ago. Fox had a pre-existing deal to air that. It was supposed to air in the summer. Guess what? They held it for fall. Then they've got MasterChef Junior, which was, again, another summer show that they held for fall. And Fox's biggest advantage here is animation. As we've talked about on the show recently, animated shows are, have been immune to the shutdown. So because they, they are produced so far out outside, it takes, look, it takes considerable amount of time to produce an episode, given the, not just the writing process, but the animation and the voiceover work, everything that goes into it. So you've got Sunday night animated shows, bless the, uh, the Simpsons, bless the hearts, Bob's burgers, family guy. That's a full night of, of original programming on Sundays. The biggest question mark on Fox's schedule is if the NFL is going to be able to return as planned. If the league can't start back up again, Fox has Thursdays and Sundays as big question marks. And of course, Sundays before animation. Animation can be a backdrop, but it's not a 52 weeks a year slot. So then you've got wrestling on Fridays. And if that becomes affected too, then you're going to have other question marks. But yeah, it's basically the strategy Fox has done is we're going to gonna pick up some virtually produced shows for summer, take the stuff that we had slotted for summer and save it for fall. And the hope is that sometime in the fall, like we mentioned with CW, production can get back up and running. And the bet is probably that new and returning shows like 911 will be back in January. And I don't even think it's such a, a bad bet. Uh, you know, quality of those two midseason shows notwithstanding and I've only seen one episode of each, and I would not say that either one is abounding in quality. On the other hand, if you put it 
in a in a world in which there are no original scripted programming suddenly and people it looks are still trapped better. at home yeah and you and you mentioned the number of people who haven't watched LA's finest it's far more than that it's the number of people who are completely and totally unaware that that show ever existed that there was a bad boys spin-off with Jessica Alba and Gabriel Union that made zero cultural ripple like not even not even not, e- not even a 0.1 cultural ripple i'm not talking ratings obviously because we don't have a clue what the ratings are for respective original but i have never heard a human being in the world talk about those shows out of the occasional tv critic and i'm not even sure that most tv critics watch those first couple episodes and the ridiculous thing is we just got spectrum in march i haven't a clue where or how to watch the spectrum originals oh it's a, if you actually go to the guide they they do push the shows fairly hard if you are a Spectrum subscriber. But if you are not, you would not know these shows existed. And the thing about L.A.'s Finest is that it was not a great show in its first season. The second season is premiering in June on Spectrum. But I, I don't understand why NBC didn't pick it up. It's not like it was the worst show in the world. It was a show that was kind of a little bit on the dull side, but still can, it has. I have a guess why. Do you? They didn't own it. Oh, that will. Yes. OK. I th- <laughs> but even still, it is a show featuring these two large movie stars. And as we saw back when the move, the new movie premiered in the spring, which was a million years ago, the Bad Boys franchise name is still one that has a tremendous amount of power now as to if Fox is actually going to be able to use the name in any advertising that will be something else. But still, yeah, it, I mean, the other question, too, that I have is how much they're actually going to market a show that is in technically is the second run. And that's the same question you could ask for the CW. Are they going to market? Tell me a story and, and swamp thing. I don't think so. I, and keeping in mind, of course, also the CW doesn't care what ratings look like anyway. So the CW can have those shows and it can really and truly just be a function of of keeping the lights on. I don't think Fox can be as blatantly. It does what it does as they are, but with some promotion, it feels to me as if there is absolutely no reason why a, again, Bad Boys sequel with Gabrielle Union and Jessica Alba shouldn't be able to do roughly the numbers that something like Lethal Weapon was doing on Fox when it ended. So that's keeping the lights on with, I don't want to say true authority, but it's keeping the lights on with a fairly high profile entry as acquisitions go. Yeah, it was an impressive move. I, I was I, I was excited to see that they did something interesting like that. And I think picking up shows like Tell Me a Story and Swamp Thing for the CW is a good move too. But but it's also these shows have been canceled already. So, you know, Swamp Thing famously canceled and and uh, Tell Me a Story is an anthology. Kevin Williamson helped launch the Vampire Diaries. He's an important person for the CW. Paul Wesley is in both seasons. It's a smart pickup for the CW. And th- and what's more, they they own both of those. You know, the CW is a joint venture between CBS TV Studios and Warner Brothers. Well, Swamp Thing is from Warner Brothers and Tell Me a Story is from CBS. So, again, it's it's in keeping with, you know, with within the family. So um, the other thing that, that I'm curious, too, is is Pedowitz was asked during his press call and we're going touching back on, on CW here for a sec. But ba- Pedowitz was asked during segment, the press call. Segments one and segments one and two are kind of a little blurry. <laughs> and three, but let's be honest. But like Pedowitz was asked during the press call if Swamp Thing rates for them, if it does any business for them, if he could renew it for a second season. 
there's no way that that's going to happen. Those sets were destroyed. That's why the show was canceled within days of its launch, because Warner Brothers didn't want to pay to keep to store sets for a show that they thought was a dog. Remember, it was picked up for 13 episodes and they cut it back to 10 based on the creative before they even got anywhere near done to completing the thing just on this, uh, you know, and so. the first couple episodes weren't bad. I stopped watching cause I don't currently have DC universe, but even still the first couple episodes weren't bad. So right. it's, it's not, this is not a bad bet for anyone involved. Yeah. yeah. It's a smart strategy and I'm very excited to see what ABC does, which takes us to our next segment. Number three. As we've mentioned now several times, in a typical year, this would be our upfronts wrap-up show, but obviously ABC, NBC, and CBS have yet to reveal their actual plans or to actually pick up new series. ABC has, in fact, yet to make most of its renewals and cancellations. Joining us to discuss what would normally be happening and what is kind of happening and what broadcast schedulers are currently grappling with is Preston Beckman, who created many a schedule during his years with Fox and NBC. Welcome to the podcast, Preston. Happy to be here. Happy to see you guys and see that you're well and healthy, or at least look well and healthy. (laughs) It's an illusion. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, let's let's start with CBS. You know, late last week, they picked up three new shows, uh, Clarice, The Equalizer, and Chuck Lorre's Plan B. Then they've got 18 other returning scripted shows, Given the current landscape regarding where production is, or in this case, isn't, and the network's lack of acquisitions, what do you make of what their strategy is right now? This is my big question, because they have so much content, and it's all reliant on going back to production. Well, yeah. I mean, I, I think CBS's strategy is CBS's strategy. I mean, if you if this was a typical year, CBS does not believe in canceling shows. They usually leave them on. Uh, you usually see what seems like, a, you know, uh, too many shows, but they do it even in good times. The shows that they're, uh, the new shows are all pre-sold, which is another part of the CBS strategy. Plus they have their, their unscripted shows. So um, I think what they're doing is saying, okay, we're going to order a lot of stuff. We're going to keep the stuff that we have, and it'll be a good problem if we can get back into production. And if we can't get back into production, maybe some of the shows can. So it didn't strike me as they were doing anything other than what I see CBS doing every year, and that's why they're as successful as they are. Right, but when you've got, when you look at the the CW schedule and and Fox's schedule, which we just finished talking about, is... They have no scripted that needs to still be produced on in the fall. I think Fox, you know, for Fox, they need to do figure out Masked Singer, which they can probably figure out a way to do remotely. CW has to film two episodes of Supernatural and that's it. But CBS is relying heavily on on that because I, as far as I understand it, they don't have anything that's in the can that could they could slot in the way that, that Fox did with something like L.A.'s Finest. Well, they have a news division that can make um, all kinds of shows. They have two people in late night that can slide down into prime time. 
and um, they probably have stuff that they're not, uh, you know, telling you about. Yeah. Like I could see maybe, maybe like the good fight airing one of its older seasons. Well, Picard, They've done that before in the summer. Yeah. I mean, I think yeah. what you're starting to see is the blurring of the lines between we, we have CBS All Access. We have these shows that are specifically forced. And here we have CBS Network. And we're going we're gonna to put them on both because at the end of the day, nobody's really seen these things. I mean, not enough people, right. let's be honest, you know, not enough people have seen these shows. I mean, look, I I loved The Good Wife. It was one of my favorite network shows. I have not, with my apologies to Kelly, I, have, I do not subscribe <laughs> to uh, CBS All Access. I'm sure it's a phenomenal show. And if CBS announced that The Good Fight was going to air in the fall, and they probably have 20, 30 episodes more 40, whatever they have, I'll, I'll be watching it, you know? And for me, yeah. it will be uh, new to you, <laughs> you know, it'll, it'll be. Yeah. So I think that, you know, the same thing that like what Fox did with that show with Jessica Alba and um, whatever, um, Gabrielle. Ellie's uh, yeah. Finest, yeah. <laughs> Pardon me, you know, it's just too much TV to remember. Every, yeah. I sure. don't get paid like you guys get paid to do it. Um, anyway, uh, nobody's seen it. It's got two big stars. It's kind of based on uh, a pre-sold franchise. It's going to play like an original. So, I, I mean, you, look, I really, I, at the beginning of the apocalypse, just at the very beginning, I tweeted out something and I said that if Trump was smart, he would let he would give the five heads of scheduling at the television networks the responsibility to solve this pandemic. And we'd be, we wouldn't be having, we would, I would be sitting with you in an office somewhere having this conversation rather than the way we're doing it. Because these are very, 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 in my opinion, not just because I was one, they're very smart people and they're very focused people and they're phenomenal when it comes to working under pressure. Most of them work, you know, during the, the, this, this, the, the uh, writer's strike. We, we've had to deal with these things. We've had to deal with crises and figure out how to get through it. So I, I'm sure they all have plans. Well, this week, under normal circumstances, would be the culmination of pilot season, and it would be the, the culmination of this particularly and spectacularly inefficient part of the Hollywood process. As you look at the kind of rejiggered way that they're having to handle it this year, do you think that there are kind of inefficiencies in the system that people are going to be like, wait, okay, clearly we don't need to be doing this anymore, or this was clearly superfluous to the process the entire time? Uh, that's a great question, and I totally agree with you. No, I, I'm serious. I, it, all During the time I was there, there were, there were there, I went into um, – Ed Wilson, who was uh, one of the top executives at Fox, and I said to Ed, why are we still doing upfronts? <laughs> and he said, what do you mean? I said, well, we have the technology now. By the way, you know, the th problem with upfronts from a network's point of view, not from your, you love it when we do this, is the landmines we step in and the mistakes we make and all those kind of things. And I said to Ed, you know, I don't know why we do them. We can put the the... The pilots, we can put the trailers online. Uh, whomever is running the network at the time can do the rationale. We can put up a schedule. We don't have to go through all the agita of the, you know, the big buyers complaining about their seats and all that kind of stuff. And, you know, if we want to have a party in the evening, fine. 
you know, but and, and we, the expense of flying out all the cast members for their 30 seconds on stage and, and to say to things, parading, right. you, know, you know, we can, I remember Brad Garrett said something once at, uh, an upfront that <laughs> caused a little problem for us, but, um, <laughs> it was several and you might know what I'm talking about. And, um, uh, yeah, and we actually sat down and we put pencil to paper. We figured out how much money we were going to save. And Ed, to, to his credit, said, this is a great idea. We should do this. And we called up John Nesvig, who is head of sales at Fox. And we were, no, we're not going to do that. You know, we got to press the flesh. And I said, come on. Do you really think that we make more money by by doing this? Oh, you know, well, we're going to see. Now, it's, it's not a good example because there are mitigating circumstances. And I'm sure that the amount of money the network's taking is going to be down. But. It would, I, I think there may be a rethinking of do we need these upfronts. I think uh, I remember again something, and I'm not saying that I'm a genius. I, I remember uh, talking to our head of business affairs at Fox and saying, you know, why don't the, you know when when something goes into syndication like Seinfeld or a Home Improvement or a Roseanne, why doesn't the syndicator cut off 22 episodes and sell them to the net, a network? They're going to do better than your worst comedy. You know, they're going to cost, you know, they're going to cost us, but you can sell them. They're pre-sold. I said, if we had, if we could go to Sony and say, we want 22 episodes of Seinfeld and we'll, we'll pay you, you know, this is when I was at Fox, we'll do fine. Well, that's what you're starting to see now. You know, you're starting to see that the networks are now in second position to some other entity. Okay. Now, by the way, that's been happening anyway. I mean, a lot of uh, CW especially, they've, we've always been going out there and buying some Canadian shows. And usually we put them on in the summer. So, you know, they're not. Yeah, it's a low cost and low risk. Exactly. Exactly. But, you know, you know it. I might know it. But a viewer doesn't know where these things are coming from or whatever. When they when they see, you know, uh, that show on Fox with two big stars, they're going to go, that's pretty cool. You know, they're not going to go, yeah. oh, well, it was on this, I don't know, you know, this little thing, you know. Right. And it's the same thing that CW is doing yes. with, um, God, I already forgot, Tell Me a Story and Swamp Thing. And Swamp Thing was like a, like a massive disaster and was like canceled after like four episodes, like four days after the first episode dropped. Hush, and I would hush. be surprised to see, <laughs> I'm sorry, I don't mean to offend. Uh, I, and I, I wouldn't be surprised to see, you know, look, we don't know what ABC strategy is and I don't mean to pick on CBS yeah, at the start of yeah. the segment, but I'm curious because they picked up so much stuff. Um, but ABC, you know, when I look at it, at what they have on the streaming side, Hulu, Disney yes. plus, obviously all the FX libraries, right. which is now on Hulu, it's all right. one big giant family. Right. Like there's tons of stuff on Disney that could work on right, ABC. Exactly. Same with Freeform. And it's like how many people have seen Grownish on Freeform, but how many people watch Blackish on ABC? Right. So I think, you know, the, look, the networks have slowly but surely been absorbed into these bigger entities. And this is maybe just going to give it another push. Uh, you know, you might see some networks look at Fox and go, how the hell do you have an, a Sunday night schedule of originals in the fall? I remember when I started Fox in 2000, uh, my, my partner in crime, MJ Lavacari, explained to me how the difference between animation and live action and how you had to actually pick up the next season before this season actually started. So, you know, once we understood that, it was like, I remember when this whole thing happened, I was talking to my wife and I said, well, Fox is going to have all new episodes on Sunday night. Well, how's that? You know, I said, because they've all already, animated. It's all animated. They've already been produced. 
You know, so um, the, yeah, I, I mean, a lot of there's been a lot of tricks and a lot of things. Look, even these two shows that Fox didn't, Fox announced. <laughs> they were probably going to burn them off in the summer. Uh, you know, the show with, with Gerald McCraney and uh, uh, the one with the madman guy. They were going to burn them off in the yeah. summer. Fil- filthy rich. And yes. Yeah. yeah. And all of a sudden they're, uh, you know, I mean, sometimes it pays to suck, I guess. <laughs> you know. <laughs> 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 well, boy, we were, we were, boy, we, on one for one minute you thought we sucked, and now you're you're we're, we're the, your savior in the fall. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Well, well, Preston, I think that's a good note for us to end on. Thank you so much for popping. Pop. No problem. Great, we appreciate great it. You stay safe, and we'll hopefully get we'll, we'll get out of this at some point. With the Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Number four. Up next is our showrunner Spotlight segment. This interview was recorded back in January. So, A, there will be no mention of COVID-19 or any variety of other things. But also, the show in question, TNT's Snowpiercer, has a different premiere date. It premieres this Sunday on TNT, so ignore anything we say about it premiering at the end of the month on TNT. And now, this week's showrunner spotlight. Joining us this week is Graham Manson, the showrunner of TNT's Snowpiercer adaptation. Before taking over the drama from series creator Josh Friedman, Manson's credits include creating BBC America's critical favorite, Orphan Black, and writing several Canadian shows. Welcome, Graham. Thanks. It's good to be here in this lovely hotel room. It's a very nice hotel room. Um, So instead of sort of approaching from the, you know, tumultuous, bumpy road angle on the question... Talk us through kind of a timetable of when you arrived on the project, what there was at the time, what they told you and what you told them. And what your pitch was. Yeah, well, I had, uh, you know, they obviously had their cast together and they had made the better part of a pilot. And I wasn't involved in that aspect of the show up up to that point. My introduction to Snowpiercer was Director Bong's movie. Um, That led me to the graphic novels. And when I heard there was... uh, TV series Chance, uh, I was dying to pitch pitch for it, and I went back to the graphic novels, and I watched that terrifically weird movie again, and I really, like, in my pitch was, like, to take the energy of Director Bong's movie, to take that visceral end-to-end charge from the tail to the engine with all of those crazy surprises of opening the doors and what the hell next is the next set going to be. I love that aspect of it and, the, and a really like hardcore culture or uh, class battle. 
mixed with this wildly existential graphic novel um, with really heady philosophical concepts. And the graphic novel starts with this, an escape from the tale. And I, I sort of felt that that was a, the right way into starting this story. And I found in the third graphic novel in the, in the uh, preface, one of the writers had written to Rochette, the artist, of the, and asked what made a great Snowpiercer story. And it was like, it just laid out the themes. It was like immigration, detention, nuclear power, climate change, all was against the backdrop of a class struggle and never ever losing sight that it's a hard-hitting action adventure. So that's what I wanted out of it. Um, that was my frame for it. Uh, and, you know, th th that was basically, that was my pitch. Was but in a situation lines. like that where there was, as you say, a pre-existing version of this, right. do they tell you what didn't work about the one before or what they're looking for different? Do they offer you the chance to see the pieces? How does that, how does that work? Because I, I do not know. Not at <laughs> all. It was a clean, it was a clean slate. Go ahead, pitch the world that you want to see. Pitch the snow work, snow piercer that you want to see. And I, I watched the previous material. I had to understand who the cast was because I walked into something that had an existing cast. So they're under contract. You you are locked in. Not to say that, you know, getting Jennifer Connelly is a, a bad Tend thing. To is a, <laughs> but you, you have to keep those people under contract. That's uh, yeah. Okay. And um, but, you know, because of my story was completely reimagined and completely different, I had to go to at least half the cast members and convince them to play other roles. And was, you know, they were gracious in that. Uh, and, and they took on the challenge. And really, like, have some meetings with David and with Jennifer to get confidence because they put a lot of work into it. Uh, and I was well aware of that, you know. One of the things that I find interesting is the show was picked up to series and then the showrunner change happened. Did you come in and pitch what your vision was before the series order came in? And I guess my, my other question here is, what did, didn't they like about Josh Friedman's take on the material? Because that at least, I mean, you know, which is why I ask about when the series was picked up and when your your involvement really started. Because if they picked it up based on Friedman's take and then threw it out, et cetera. I think it was already picked up. I think it was already picked up. So they picked it up the series and, and in your conversations with the network executives there at TNT, what were the things that they didn't like about Josh's take that they really... That, what did they tell you that they, they didn't like about what he delivered? Uh, I, don't, I, I don't remember anything specific, honestly. I was given the blank slate. It's like, what would you do with it? So, you know, I wanted it to be kinetic and edgier seat type thrilling viewing. And, you know, I had no involvement with the previous uh, production whatsoever. So I always just kind of didn't really respond to that. Like, literally, it was like I'd been in Hollywood for like three months or something. <laughs> like, I was like, I got a job! <laughs> and it's Snowpiercer, for God's sake. Like, you know, I was, you know, just really, I was kind of new to the town and a new, new job. And uh, so I was just raring to go. So you had previously wrapped Orphan Black, which was done in Canada, if mm -hmm. memory serves. Mm -hmm. um, you know, Friedman, when you came in and replaced Josh, he had some pretty, I'll say, choice words about not getting a phone call. I don't know what the protocol is. I'm not a showrunner. But does that 
have you reached out to him since then? Have you had any conversations with him? Or and what did you think of that? And no, did I, I didn't have time in the in to begin with, and I so I just didn't respond, and I'm not going to. You know, kind of kind of ended that opportunity. Yeah, I just I ne- I have always wonder if there is a protocol for when one there is no takes protocol over for someone else. If there is no protocol yeah. at all. There is no protocol. Some wouldn't want to call. Most, uh, you know, many people wouldn't want to talk to the next person coming in. So there is there isn't a protocol. Yeah, you know, speaking of choice words, Scott Derrickson, who directed Friedman's pilot, also went on the offensive and. Obviously, he loved what he did, you know, the finished product of, of Freeman's product. He loved the, his script, and he didn't return for for the reshoots. How did that change what your vision was, and what, like, did you have any conversations with him? No. No, I didn't uh, meet him either. You know, we shot a new pilot. There weren't reshoots. So looking at this pilot as it is, you mentioned sort of going to the graphic novel and finding what the thematic core is. I hate to use a train analogy, but how did you find the engine that would allow this to be a, uh, a weekly television show? Apologies for the pun. And that is going to be the first of many train puns. I, I'm going to try to avoid as much as possible. But You're just getting up ahead of steam right I, now. <laughs> I was going to say, I, I assume you probably spent like two years making nonstop train puns, so I can only apologize so much. <laughs> okay, so finding the engine of this, how did you find sort of what the core was that allowed it to actually be a weekly TV series? Well, it was to do something different that, than the beautiful linear structure of Director Bong's uh, movie. That's an A to B. I mean, I think even everything in the frame moves left to right. And so in order to be a character drama, in order to get that juice that you're going to go back to every week, we had to set up each class. We couldn't discover them through the through movement up train. So we we land and we discover Jennifer in her world and we land and we discover David in his world and we see the worlds in between and we understand the workers and the, the politics and the structure of society on the train. And then the engine of the season really is, you know, David's pulled out to, as the last homicide detective on earth, pulled out to solve a murder which is very dangerous to the fabric of the train where rules are strictly enforced and paranoia runs rampant and then to pull out David set him on this murder mystery but he's only half doing that job he's got his eyes open he's a prisoner and he is looking at everything about how the train works he's looking at schedules he's looking at He's looking for allies. He's making contacts that will help him in his revolution. So at its core, the, the whole of the season is a, is a story of res- resistance and a slowly building revolution. You guys are already renewed for a second season, but how much track is there? How many more seasons do you have in mind for this show? Good, good, I had good, to make the train good question. Sorry. It's like, I always sort of think of them in uh, three seasons, a start by three seasons. I did the same thing with Orphan Black. If you think of it as three seasons, a beginning, a middle, and an end. Oh, if we can only get three seasons, it'll be, it'll be awesome. And then if you get lucky enough that you go beyond one and you get to three, then it's, it's kind of easy to, easier to think of five from three when you get five acts. So you start with the three acts, and then you move to five acts, and then I've never gone beyond that, and I don't know if I could. <laughs> five years is a long time. But uh, seven seems to work, too. Only odd numbers. Maybe this is what we should take away from this. 
But it's still, I mean, you know, we, we are in a straight, sort of strange ecosystem where multi-season renewals are a thing and where people renewing shows before they ever premiere is a thing. But I don't know that I've ever seen a show renewed quite as far ahead of the premiere as you guys were. Was that essential? Like, was there no way you could? Did you need that extra time? And was that really about the cast options expiring? Since? That was about that was about cast options, getting the writers working, getting everybody working while, you know, TNT and while Warner Media really was coming together with HBO Max. So I think that their need to or, and desire to use the show to, to help launch that service um, held it held it back. But we, of course, we uh, needed to keep going or you start to lose cast and, and all those kind of things. Oh, uh, come on. Surely there's a train metaphor or analogy you're <laughs> supposed to be able to make there. Oh, you're right. You're right. Something about stoking the engines just or Stoking the engines and just or... keep on chugging. <laughs> Uh, when you know you mentioned TNT and TBS and how Warner Media, you know they've made a lot of changes. And uh, you know we're recording this is the middle of January, and it's good, and the episode will come out in May, presumably after HBO Max has launched. But you know the show moved around; uh, it moved to TBS briefly, and then back to TNT. What I mean, what was that process? Can you give us any insight into what those conversations were? I mean, obviously TBS is pushing into drama, but. I mean, um, it's Big Bang Theory repeats, basically. Yeah, it, it all sort of went on uh, uh, above my head. It, it felt like they must be rebranding. Um, but then it went back and that felt like the right decision. So, you know, it's just it was just growing pains over there um, and figuring out where things are, are going to go. It didn't affect us at all. It didn't affect how I felt the show like I didn't, I didn't go. Oh no! Or I didn't worry about how it was going to be buried or anything like that. But did you ask for sort of what their pitch was for the explanation for why it was happening, uh, or do you just trust on faith? Yeah, no, there's conversations, but those are like the least important conversations in my day. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, how much does a platform really matter to you, considering most people will more than likely find the show on HBO Max? Yeah, I, that's a, that's really a question for a, an exact, a network exact. I don't know. I'm one of those guys. Like, I don't tend to go and rewatch my stuff. <laughs> one of the, like some people do, some people don't. I don't but, tend to go and rewatch. But knowing it. what the show is and the energy, you mentioned it having kind of the pacing and the heart of, of and the intensity of Bong's original fe- uh, feature, which is tremendously great. And a show like that, I would presume, would be best served to an audience by with a binge model. Do you know if there's going to be like, are you going to premiere on the linear network? Obviously, episode a week. But then when you move to Max. Is it going to be a binge model there? I could see, you know, Kevin Riley's had a lot of experimentation on TBS and TND with models like that, with shows like Angie. Yeah, Jessica, I don't know the exact strategy, but I assume that it will move to HBO Max. I don't know after how many episodes play. I don't know if it's a full season or whether they'll be like put out three and, and, and you know, come up behind it. Uh, I, yeah, that's under like, keeping that tight. I want to talk about some of the sort of challenges of a show like this. To me, and watching the movie, I felt this way. Watching the pilot, I felt this way. That the horrors of spatial continuity in this world have to keep somebody up at night. What did you have by way of a model in the writer's room so that everyone could keep track of where you were. How did you know where you were at any given point? On the train. On the train. In the story. Keeping that propulsion going. Yeah, it's. Um I mean, we had a, a map of the train that ran around the writer's room, and we used it in the art department. We used it for showing, pitching people, taking, we'd bring 
whatever department needed, and we'd go to the model of the train, and we'd say, we're here. And then, and then the practicality of being on set, like every set has an up train or a down train sign on which end of the train you're on so that we can, you know where you're, you're going because it's easy to get turned around. Thankfully, in the editing room, it's, I found it actually more forgiving than I thought it would be, the spatial, like uh, where you are or where you're getting lost. Um, thankfully. Well, how many cars did you actually have and how many were you just redressing on a weekly basis? There is, it's, you know, we have a big soundstage. We have four large stages and two of them we knocked a wall out between so that we can put five cars in a row and hook them all together and they all have links in between, you know, those links like you have on a subway. And you can, so we can walk from, we can walk the length of five cars or you can you can even look down the barrel and you can we can have a forklift push push one end of the train as you're going around a corner so that's amazing and all those sets are built on airbags or on uh, are on they're on like rubber shipping container wheels so that they really jostle nicely and and feel really kinetic and then some of our larger sets are on the ground and we've got people like pulling fishing line to move the curtains and all those old tricks and little t- things on the table, glasses, you know, water moving on the table and stuff like that. Uh, that just felt like a very Jurassic Park moment, um, <laughs> or whatever that's <laughs> worth to our listeners. But Bong is obviously having a big year with Parasite, um, which is also in the works at HBO, too, as a TV show. He's an exec producer here on the show? Uh, yeah, not certainly not on a daily basis, um, but I had the pleasure of meeting him a couple times in the first season he came to set. Um, and really felt, we all felt great because he was behind it. He liked it. Uh, it's very, really proud of that. What did um, he react to on the set? He mostly for me, I mean, he liked what we were doing. You know, he's so visual, but he, he liked what we were doing. He liked our sets. Um, we rebuilt all the sets. He liked the claustrophobia and he also liked the, the hard hitting element, the tone of the show. I think he really liked, liked the tone and the mystery. Um, so that's, you know, that's, that's good. He, 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 and, and I think there's, there's certainly enough in it for, for Bong and for Bong fans that uh, you'll recognize the, the Snowpiercer, the movie, and the show, too. Um, from the conversations that you did have with him, what were some of the big takeaways? Did he give you any advice? Did he weigh in on anything? Did you have any anything that he he told you that really stuck with you that you incorporated? He's funny. <laughs> That's what I remember. He made me laugh. We had some laughs. I, I remember some conversations about about the the, the graphic novel and the, the some of the weirder aspects of the graphic novel, which uh, you know that was that was nice too to 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 think. Well, it's that's. If that weird element has Director Bong's stamp of approval, maybe we can use that, too. Well, I would go to so far as to describe the movie. It's not a comedy, but it is a satire, and it's really genuinely hilarious at points. How hard was it to make sure you got that aspect into the tone when you're also trying to do something propulsive, exciting, gritty, dramatic? I can't help it. I got the black humor, and it shows up in everything. I love it. I love the heart. I love I love undercutting drama or violence or whatever with 
weirdness and laughter, um, you know, and, and I was really comfortable doing that after, uh, you know, Orphan Black had that element to its tone. So that was something, that's part of what I loved and part of what I wanted to, you know, lean into. You mentioned Orphan Black. There is a new take in development from Sarah Barnett, who, with whom you worked with at BBC America, and this one's for AMC. Um, as of now, there's no writer attached, but have you had any conversations with Sarah about that? And what do you think of what's go- what of their attempts to, ex- to further explore a different clone in that? Um, I haven't talked with Sarah about it, but I have talked with my friends at Temple Street um, and have been aware of what they're doing. Um, a couple, you know, threw out a few kicks at the can of trying to create another show in the world of Orphan Black. I'm not sure whether they have a new writer now or not. But I'm kind of abreast of 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 what they're what they're doing. Yeah. Would you be involved? Probably not. You know, I think it's uh, I, new worlds. Probably have a have a new creator. Um, uh, it'll be a different different version, different uh, different clone. Um, I don't even know that it will be clones. But how do you deal without clones? I guess. Yeah, I mean that's the yeah that's what they've said is that it'll probably re- explore new clones. So. Obviously, you know, you know, Tatiana Maslany, the show really helped cement and solidify her future in Hollywood. But have you had any conversations with her about maybe bringing her in to Snowpiercer? Uh, I, that's probably just in my like secret bag of of uh, requests that'll come out later. Um, what's she doing now? She's doing uh, Perry Mason. Mm-hmm. Um, but Which yeah, is in no, the Warner Media family. That's true. Well. Um, <laughs> You know, considering now that we're already shooting season two, let's keep that open for season three. Yeah, you do have a big bad that you need to cast. Tat's, um, you know, I've seen a fair amount of her since we've wrapped. It's always a pleasure. I'm curious about sort of leaps in scale, because I remember how small Orphan Black seemed when it premiered. It was it was way under the radar. It was this little show. No, you know, BBC America, I don't think, had a clue what it was when they started sending out screeners to critics. And then we were all like, oh, my God, did you see this? You've got to watch this. How big did that show get in terms of production scale between the first and the last season in terms of a leap? And then does Snowpiercer feel like another leap? Like, does it feel like you're in this huge playground now or is it comparable? No, it's a leap for sure. Um, Orphan Black, we started small, but our budget did increase over those five seasons. But it was we made it in Toronto, and it was uh, 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 the deal was such that we didn't even cast out of the, the states. It's all Canadian cast. It's ca- and that's when we when we did reach out for a non-Canadian cast, we went across the pond. That that element was part of what. Like that was just that just happened. That's how this sort of British element worked its way in and sort of made it feel international. It was kind of interesting. Um, but then stepping from that, which really even at the end felt like we were making a show with all our friends, you know, and we knew the execs. execs. I'd worked with them before. There was only two of them. <laughs> <laughs> That's incredibly <laughs> crazy sounding, yeah, considering how many scripts and execs you must have it, yeah. with so, Warner Medium. So just the whole thing is is smaller scale and more homespun at working at home. And this was a real leap to come down here and have a much bigger budget and way more visual effects, which is not my forte. I'm a writer, but I brought my our special effects uh, supervisor from Orphan Black. 
Is that all that you've been able to bring over? Because you came over to a production that already had people locked in. What other friends have you been able to bring over for your own comfort zone, if nothing else? Uh, writers. Okay. Um, Aubrey Nealon, who wrote a number of uh, on a number of seasons, um, was has been my second for both both these seasons. A couple other writers as well. Keep tr- trying to reach back into our cast. But there's this this great, greater impetus to cast out of the states with this show, and that's that's a whole much larger game, as well as the, you know, the the, the number of executives in the water you have to carry uh, in terms of satisfying people. It's uh, it's it's a huge difference. One thing that I do want to ask is, you know, you, you're with a, a show that's got a history like this before it even premieres. Obviously, you know, the showrunner changes, the director, the re- pilot reshoot, uh, the, the entire. Two different pilots, effectively, which is what you're saying, renewed and changing networks. When a show has that kind of tail behind it before it launches, how does that impact the message that it sends? And and do you feel any concern about that with getting withdrawing potential viewers with that? You know, like honestly, I didn't pay any attention to that, so I don't think anybody else, an audience member, would. It'll hit the, it'll hit the screen and it'll be alive on its own merits. I'm fully confident in that. All things have long histories. Mm-hmm. Sometimes they're, you know, sometimes they're full of acrimony or strange, or uh, other times it's just long slogs. But everything takes a long time to get done. I don't think getting Snowpiercer done is 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 actually a long timeline at all. It's still visible. I mean, like in the sense that Orphan Black, anything could have happened behind the scenes before it premiered, and we would have had no idea whatsoever. And that's obviously a blessing. To you guys, you know, there could have been, again, 15 different showrunners, five pilots, and we never would have known because it was under the radar. Does it feel different, the fact that you've got something that's on the radar, you know, that that there are actually are people, there's a fan base that's going to come out and either be excited for this or ready to, you know, fangs one or the other. God, I guess I don't think about that much. <laughs> I, you know, I'm a, I'm a fan of Snowpiercer the movie, and I think we did it justice, and I think... Uh, you know, it's different. It's much different, but I think it's got these key elements from both the novel, graphic novels, and the uh, and the film. And it's just like the the cast is the cast is going to win it, man. Jennifer Connelly is so good. Like, it's been a it's been an amazing journey working with with her, not just her, but you know, David is amazing. Allison Wright is a tremendous, tremendously precise and funny actor. They're going to win it. You know, it's like history won't matter. I don't. Th- I don't think the fact that it comes with people who are already fans of it. I mean, that's why nobody makes original sci-fi anymore. Uh, true, or any original anything anymore. Original anything. Yeah. Well, one thing we do like to ask our showrunners as we wrap these interviews is, what are you watching and enjoying? I'm in the middle of season two. Um, but I, so I just don't have the time for good TV when I'm working. I, <laughs> I sense a, just, just I sense a butt coming here. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I watch like, you know, anything with like anything in the Arctic with a gold mine. I, those are the shows I watch. Like, you know, like the guys trying to get gold out of rushing rivers. That's my like half an hour of television and television watching oh, at so, night. So gold rush on discovery. Yeah. Those like, yeah, that or like men on fishing boats, that men kind of on, thing. Yeah. Okay. Deadliest catch. And, <laughs> okay. and, and that, but I also, um, I can rewatch stuff and I started rewatching the Americans, uh, from the pilot just last week. 
Um, and yeah, just again to watch Allison. Oh, poor Martha. <laughs> <laughs> that, that would be what I would be saying to her every day on the set is, are you going to treat her with more kindness than the Americans sometimes treated that character? Well, uh, Allison is just not treated with kid gloves on Snowpiercer. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. Well, we thank you so much for joining us in our showrunner spotlight. Thank you so much. Thank you, Graham. Cheers. Snowpiercer launches May 17th on TNT. Number five. As usual, we wrap things up with the Critics Corner. Among this week's major new launches are The Great on Hulu, High Town on Stars, of course, Snowpiercer on TNT, which we just talked extensively about, DC Universe Import Stargirl on The CW, and Sweet Magnolias on Netflix. Dan, what you got? Leslie, what the heck is Sweet Magnolias on Netflix? It's, it's, a, it's basically a Hallmark show because Netflix is trying to be Hallmark now, too. Excellent. Well, I like it yep. when you uh, when you list things coming up for the week to come, and I've never heard of several of them. Good times. Hey, uh, sometimes you do that, too. This is true, but it's also my job to watch a lot of those weird, weird inconceivable shows. So anyway, Sweet Magnolias on Netflix. I have no idea. It could be fantastic. Uh <laughs> No, my, my favorite thing premiering this week is unquestionably The Great on Hulu. It is uh, from Tony McNamara, who was one of the co-writers on The Favorite, with a U, uh, the Oscar-winning film from a couple of years ago. And it is a semi-historical take on the ascension of Catherine the Great, played here by Elle Fanning, obviously at a younger age than the version of Catherine the Great played by Helen Mirren on the HBO limited series that you probably don't remember existed. Uh, it is a funny, randy, darkly satirical, largely ahistorical romp. And it's a lot of fun. It's a lot of awful people being awful and jockeying for power. Uh, people will obviously think of the favorite, and of course they should, and it has a lot of that in it. Uh, but the show I thought of frequently watching it was Succession, uh, which is also a show about people who are so wealthy and insulated that they lose any track of the actual world around them. And I think that that is a fun thing to watch happen. I found it extremely funny. It's important going in to know that, yes, it is trying to be funny. So if you're like, eh, why are they doing that? That's so dumb. It's trying to be funny. It's a, it's a little bit in the ahistorical vein of, of Dickinson on Apple TV+, Plus, though not as extreme in that respect. Uh, I thought that Elle Fanning is great. I think that Nicholas Holt playing her, her rather dim bulb, Husband is also terrific. It's got a very good supporting cast of very fine British actors. And it it looks great. The costumes are great. The production values are great. And honestly, it made me laugh. And I thought it was a complicated look at both several relationships and at power. And so I, I really like that show. I watched all 10 episodes of the first season, even though I wasn't even reviewing it. So sometimes I don't have the time to do that before things premiere. So, yeah, I I really enjoy the great. What else is this week? Well, you, you mentioned Snowpiercer and uh it's not great. On the other <laughs> hand, uh, but on the other hand, and I keep saying this, it's also not a total disaster. And it really and truly could have been given all of the things that happened behind the scenes, some of which were discussed by Graham Manson in our interview. 
uh, you know, all of the different pilots that there were. So multiple scripts, multiple actual pilots, multiple showrunners, multiple directors, multiple networks, multiple seasons, exactly. Multiple premiere dates. So it could really have been a total, as my review says, pun horribly, whatever. Uh, it could have been a train wreck. And Oof. it starts off messy. And I don't think the first couple episodes are all that good. But around episode four and five, I started enjoying a lot of the performances. I started really enjoying what Jennifer Connelly is doing as the head of hospitality on this train that is circling the earth after a post-apocalyptic freeze and sheltering the remaining 3,000 humans surviving. I, I thought that what Jennifer Connelly was doing was very interesting. I thought that what the Americans veteran Allison Wright is doing is very interesting. I, I didn't love David Diggs in the lead as the last homicide detective on earth again on a train uh, that that wasn't really all that interesting to me but if you make it through the first couple episodes it does improve it picks up dramatically in pace a lot of stuff happens in the second half of the season the setup for the for the second season which was renewed which was renewed long before the show premiered so it will happen uh is is interesting so I, I didn't love this one, but it really it could have been significantly worse. Uh, but, you know, so you'll you'll take that as it is. But really, the thing I'm recommending this week is uh, the great on Hulu, because I think it's it's really good. It isn't going to be everybody's tonal cup of tea. Obviously, if you watched the favorite and didn't like what it was doing. This isn't exactly that because it doesn't have uh, Yorgos Lathamos's love of fisheye lenses and the strange visual flourishes that he brought to that. But uh, but yeah, it, it is in that vein. So know that the humor is sort of like that. But I, I enjoyed that one a lot. Well, that feels like a good place to wrap things up. For more of Dan's weekly recommendations, be sure to subscribe to THR's Now See This newsletter. Thank you for listening to TV's Top 5, the Hollywood Reporter's TV podcast. We will be back next week when we will be joined by homecoming exec producer Sam Ismail. Until then, be sure to subscribe on all of your various podcasting platforms. If you like us, rate us. If you really like us, write a little reviewy thing. It helps spread the word of mouth. We're always on Twitter, and we always like hearing what y'all have to say, questions, comments, concerns. But we're probably due for another mailbag segment either this coming week or next week. So if you have any actual questions for us, email us at TV's top five at THR.com. That's TV's top five, the number five at THR.com. Until next week, Leslie. Until next week, Dan. It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say. Your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandslots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandslots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. 
That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BDW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.